0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 9th of January, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show...
1: Over the years, thousands of Americans have been brutally killed by those who illegally entered our country, and thousands more lives will be lost if we don't act
0: right now. President Donald Trump called for support for his border wall in a televised speech last night. But what responsibility do television networks have for broadcasting his factually loose rhetoric? My guests Carlo Benura and Mary dejevski will be discussing this and today's other top stories, including the latest on the Saudi woman detained in Thailand and the ongoing spat between France and Italy, which is now getting cultural. And we'll ask what happens when a leader is undermined by their predecessor. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Beach. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Djejewski, a columnist for The Independent and for The Guardian, and former foreign correspondent in Moscow, Paris, and in Washington, and Carlo Bonura, Senior Teaching Fellow in Southeast Asian Politics at SOAS. Welcome both back to the program. We start, as we often do, on Midori House in Washington, D.C., where last night President Donald Trump gave a much-anticipated speech aimed at bolstering support for his even more anticipated border wall. It was his first national address from the White House, but he didn't declare an emergency, as some had predicted, which could have seen him undermining Congress to get funding for his much-desired wall. Is there a case, uh, Mary, for channels like CNN, who've been repeatedly criticized by Trump to just not just not broadcasted at all.
2: Well, you know, I come from this um, from a bit of a different place because I was amazed that this was a question at all Hmm. Um, because it seemed to me that, you know, the president is elected president of the United States and if he wants to address the people of the United States, then it seems to me he's got every right to do that in his terms. Um, And the idea that the broadcasters, which of course in the United States are largely um, privately funded... Unlike public service broadcasting, say in the in in the UK and the BBC, which is so dominant, mm-hmm. um, they are apparently sort of taking a rather um, market-based but also rather um, moral um, attitude to this, mm. as to whether they should really carry it because you know Trump is this sort of president, um, and they don't know whether he'll be factual and all the rest of it. I mean, I just found that completely extraordinary. It seemed to me that if the president wants to go on the media and address the people, um, whatever you think about it as um, your particular broadcaster, um, you sort of have an obligation to make that connection between the elected president and the people.
0: Hmm. Well, if we look at it on the other side, CNN did, of course, have an all-star panel of political commentators ready to jump on Trump's every words there. So they're taking advantage of that situation for the ratings as well, are they not? So, Damned if they do, damned if they don't. Is some is the argument some have presented, but on the other side, Carlo, um, I mean, they're making something of it as well. For their narrative
1: yeah absolutely I mean I agree hundred uh, percent and in fact I was shocked that there was this big uh, confusion um, after the president announced that all the that he would be addressing the country there was this debate over Twitter among some of the um, I, don't, I don't know if it was, they were journalists or people related to the to the media industry uh, saying that in fact some of the networks hadn't um, agreed upon the uh, airing the the speech I, I cannot remember this happening previously and in fact but if we take this Seriously, the uh, a presidential address. Seriously, when why would we expect a president not to, um, uh, you know, to present an argument which is highly rhetorical and in fact filled with uh, inaccuracies and flourishes? I think if we if we think about particularly go back to the the uh, Bush Juniors administration, mm-hmm. uh, this was uh, he was a president who constantly addressed the the public on on issues that we now know were. Uh, based upon
0: highly fraudulent uh, logic. So, S- so what other options do they have? Do you think, Mary? I mean, just show it, and the people can can judge for themselves.
2: Well, yes. I mean, that's that that's what I would sort of assume that the, the it is a presidential prerogative to be to, to, to be given the airtime to mm. do this. Um, but I think, on the other hand, one of the interesting things is that um, you might have expected that um, a president would sort of benefit um, by that format of speaking very formally from from the Oval Office with as it were his aura of president. And it seems that this president, because as it were, he's made the media running in very different register through all his tweeting, through his spontaneous um, press conferences, all the things that in a way rub the traditional media completely the wrong way in the United States, Um, it seems that his message doesn't get across nearly so effectively when he adopts that um, formal Hmm. sort of presidential tone speaking from the Oval Office. And it is extraordinary to me too that, I mean, it's two years into his presidency, and this was the first address he'd given from the Oval Office.
0: I was going to say that. Does that surprise you, Carlo,
1: considering uh, it has been two years? Uh, it's very surprising. I think, again, I agree uh, with this point about um, his uh, performance in front of the camera. However, I think that, uh, that the speech was most likely very, very successful for uh, his supporters. And in fact, uh, what Trump did in this speech, which he hasn't really been able to do successfully in previous speeches where he kind of stuck to the script, uh, is actually... Uh, use this, I I think, very powerful, uh, dangerous, but powerful mixture of fear and fact in a way that uh, uh, in fact... um overcomes the uh, brevity and sometimes the incoherence of his tweets. You know, what we saw here was, uh, in this speech, was a dropping out of the more egregious uh, misstatements in the past. This uh, argument about terrorism was gone, you know, that terrorists are coming mm-hmm. over the borders. And in fact, it was a stringing together of a level of uh, fairly, uh, of uh, fear-mongering in, in many cases, but a stringing together of these facts in a way which I think would make a very clear argument to those people who already agree with him in right. ways that they were not um that was not available to them in the past just through his tweets the tweets and the sound bites uh, Makes sense to people uh, who are his supporters, but actually this strung it all together. And I think from that point of view, it could, people
0: could be seeing this as a successful speech for Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you say that. I was looking at the the New York Times review, and they do their big spread on on the fact check of the of the president's speech, as they often do. And and they weren't saying wrong, wrong, wrong. Most of the responses were this needs context, and I think that's exactly what you're saying. That he's not he's not you know putting out real falsities, but a lot of it is is misleading. And I think that that's a part of the point. Would you agree with that, Mary?
2: Well, I would agree with that, but I would also add something, which I think is a context at least abroad, um, which is very often not given. Um, because what he was basically talking about was border security and his project for the wall, the fence um, with Mexico. Um, and the idea that Congress has to clear funds for this, which is the whole reason um, for the deadlock in Washington. Um, but what it seems to me is missed. Maybe less in the United States, where it's taken for granted, but certainly in Europe, is that there is a fence or a wall along quite a lot of the US Mexico border. I've seen it, I've visited it. It's incredibly forbidding where it exists. Um, and we're suddenly presented with the idea of, you know, Trump, this sort of I- extraordinary, sort of irresponsible, mercuric president, um, just sort of thought one day that he was going to lock Mexico out and he he would build a wall. Previous presidents, previous congresses have sanctioned and have cleared the funds to build fortifications along pretty much one-third of that border. So the idea that this is this is some peculiar Trumpian preoccupation, that's actually not true. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I, again, I agree. Um, we can go back to the 1980s when these debates over immigration were raging in Congress. Uh, and what I think was uh, very important, both from, from Trump's point of view, uh, but also in terms of how we judge the effects of the speech is not so much the individual facts that may have been uh, wrong or lacking context or misleading, but actually the the creation of this more of this uh, general narrative about the danger and the crisis at the border. I, I agree 100%, uh, 100% that there are all kinds of physical barriers all, lo- all, all along the, um, the U.S.-Mexico border. The question for Trump is, can he really sell this narrative of crisis? And I think there the speech, may be, again, may be somewhat successful. Mm,
0: g- very good point there. Uh, I want to move us on uh, now to Thailand, where the Saudi teenager who locked herself in a hotel room at the airport to avoid being deported back to her family has been referred by the U.N. to Australia to seek refuge. Rahaf Mohammed al kunin uh, claimed her family might kill her and left them behind in Kuwait to travel to Thailand with the ultimate aim of then flying on to Australia where she could seek refugee status. As well as a huge amount of press coverage for herself, she has perhaps inadvertently shown the spotlight on Thailand's less-than-satisfactory asylum process. First of all, uh, Carlo, did Thailand botch this or is this sort of trial by international media? Does Thailand just caught in the middle of of a weird situation here? Uh, That's a good question. I think that the Thai
1: authorities most likely processed her in the way that they would process anybody. Uh, That system itself might be overly harsh Uh, and in this case, and it's not only this case, but also it's a parallel case of a, I think it's a footballer from Bahrain who uh, was um, detained in Bangkok uh, on his, uh, I think, leaving uh, Bahrain uh, and had, there was a, a Interpol uh, warning on him and he was detained by the authorities there. The fact that they're not Checking who these people are, or or what the complications in their cases might be, uh, and certainly in this case where they worked with, it appears that they worked with the Saudi embassy uh, to send them back to send uh, this woman back to Kuwait. Mm-hmm. These are all um, these are all problems. In her case, though, unlike well, in both of the cases, actually, there's been a very rapid mobilization of social media, and that's been. Um, That has been a deciding factor here. This is a military government which is not accountable to anybody at this Mm. moment. Uh, They should have no, they they would have no qualms about um,
0: deporting somebody or sending them right back. And so these are obviously exceptional cases. Uh, Mary, do you think this is uh, just all due to the international attention or does it fit in with the, the wider disapproval of, of Saudi, cr- uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's record uh, and, and sort of the negative attention that, that they have had recently?
2: I think it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I saw one um, one wonderful quip that suggested that um, uh, Saudi would have been more um, accepting if um, Thailand had not confiscated the girl's passport but had confiscated her mobile phone. Um, Because that was what enabled her, really gave her access to the outside world. That's what created the Twitter storm. That really is what has allowed her um, to stay where she is and possibly get to Australia, which is where she was planning to go, um, and which she apparently had a visa for in the passport that was confiscated. Um, So there's all that going on. But I think, as you say, um, the the wider aspect of this is that Saudi Arabia is not not enjoying um, a good global image at the moment. And there's the Khashoggi Koji case. Um, there is the war in Yemen. Um, there's all sorts of other things that have really um, tarnished um, the image of the crown prince when he first came, to, well, when he first came to power. When it was he was thought of being maybe a bit more enlightened, going to bring Saudi into the modern age. Um, and really, it's been almost backwards since mm. then. Um, and I think in the international context, that's been a huge help um, to the girl who is now... I mean, it looks as though um, she's certainly at the moment protected um, and as though she'll be allowed to go to Australia. Uh,
0: Carlo, on that point, do you think Australia or, or anywhere else where this young woman could have applied for asylum or tried to uh, have much choice now in, in taking her in before they know the whole story um, because of this uh, sort of social media storm? I think at this stage, after uh, we've had
1: the initial uh, uh Bought up by the Thai authorities, everybody is playing it safe. So Mm. today I saw that uh, the Australian government is saying that this case is no different than any other. It'll be processed by UNHCR, uh, and that once they do their report, then uh, the Australian government will process the case uh, normally. There is a slight question of diplomacy here. I think Australia is very keen not to necessarily put pressure on the Thai government about this case. The Thai government is keen not to uh, make any moves that would interrupt the UNHCR's um, moves here. Here to make mm. sure that they don't uh, invite any further criticism. And then uh, the um, Saudi, it w- will be very interesting to see what happens to Saudi-Thai relations after both of these cases are right. uh, processed because uh, obviously this won't disrupt the relationship, but uh, certainly in the region, I think the region itself of Southeast Asia is kind of recalibrating its uh, relations with uh, Saudi Arabia. And again, this bad publicity and the fact that Thailand seems to be the conduit for a number of these uh, I was about to say dissidents, but in this case, it's not about dissidents, it's just individuals who mm. want to get out of the region. Um, this could become a bigger issue if Thailand, more and more
0: individuals go through Thailand to do this. Mm. I should ask you uh, on that point, does, does Thailand feel any pressure in the region to, to, to sort of bow to Saudi Arabia or what they want? Or are they, do they have their own – you mentioned earlier they're the military government, they can do what they want. But do, are they feeling any pressure on this at all from Saudi Arabia? Uh, I don't think that there's I'm not sure there's much
1: leverage that um, Saudi Arabia has on Thailand Uh, in certainly the the bigger relationships with for Saudi Arabia in the region are in Malaysia and Indonesia uh, for maybe for obvious reasons Uh, but this is something that you know this is a headache that the Thai government does not need right now Uh, and and actually to be honest Thailand itself has already uh, been put under huge amounts of scrutiny over the last four years since the government's come to power in terms of its human trafficking record. so it wants to appear like it's doing things above board. In this case, I mean, just very quickly, the I think the, one of the issues with her is that uh, the Thai authorities contacted the Saudi government because they believed it was a family matter. Right. Uh, but she's an eighteen. She's eighteen. She's an
0: adult. Like she should have been uh, dealt with individually. I think. Right. Hmm. Uh, Mary, what about for other people in Saudi Arabia who might want to leave? Do you think this sets an example? And there are millions of refugees that haven't swept social media. Is is this a bit of? Her jumping the queue, again, not discounting fears for for her safety, but with this, you know, huge social media attention.
2: Well, I think that there is a... There is a dilemma in a way, um, which is there's a missing element of this story, which would be very interesting to find out, as to how she actually got out of Saudi Arabia and got Mm. to Thailand. Mm. Because I think that she got as far as Kuwait with her family, but then left, and she'd got a stamp in her passport giving her a tourist visa to Australia. Now, how did she get that? Um, Because that is not something that is very easy for any 18-year-old Saudi girl to get. Hmm. Um, did she have the degree of um, autonomy, um, even aged 18 in Saudi Arabia, where this guardianship system exists? Um how did she actually get to where she's got? And I think that's that's one reason why it's going to be very difficult for um, other people to follow that same route. Mm. Um, I also think that for, um, for Thailand, actually, it's in maybe a slightly um, simpler position than some other countries might be, because um, she is not actually requesting asylum in Thailand. Hmm. And it's always easier for countries who are not at the end of the line um, to give, as it were, temporary refuge, um, because they know um, that they're not going to get hundreds of people trying to follow and stay. Hmm. They're simply really the staging post.
0: You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Carlo Benura and Mary Dejewski. Coming up next, what happens when a former leader undermines their successor? And the latest in the ongoing spat between France and Italy.
1: The Foreign Desk is Monocle24's weekly global affairs program. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those
2: left untold. What are we doing after? ISIS is gone from there. What is going to happen to Raqqa after the liberation? We are in a vicious circle to a certain extent. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. When you ask, can you imagine a Russia without Putin after Putin, it's not a case of imagining for us, the, the Russian democratic opposition, we have to prepare for Russia after Putin. Because we cannot afford not to be ready again when big political change begins.
1: The Foreign Desk, with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time,
2: right here on Monocle 24.
0: Welcome back, still with me, Carlo Benura and Mary Djejewski. We turn our attention now to diplomacy and to India, where former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper has paid a visit to the country to attend an annual geopolitical summit. He also took the opportunity to meet with his old friend, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The Canadian newspaper headlines have pointed out that Harper wore a regular black suit, important as current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had a disastrous visit to the country just 10 months ago, where he was called out for dressing himself and his family in Religious and ceremonial garments. While Harper has been completely away from politics, he's now seemingly found a way to undermine the Prime Minister and Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Canadian Conservative Party, the party Harper himself used to head. Despite Harper still sporting the most boring haircut and suit combo of all time, Modi is a huge fan. Interesting in a Canadian election year. uh, Mary Modi said they held productive conversations on the development of Indo-Canadian relations. See also undermining diplomacy. Do you think between the two countries by welcoming Harper, he didn't he didn't do a good job of welcoming Justin Trudeau, the actual prime minister?
2: No, um, I think it's always um, rather vexed relationships between people and their incumbent leaders and their predecessors, and this is why there's actually quite a quite a. Fixed diplomatic code about who is supposed to do what. Um, until very recently, this was um, almost an iron cast in the United States. Um, the idea that the outgoing president didn't criticize the the, the incumbent president. Well, um, Barack Obama has, um, on several occasions, quite publicly, um, criticized his successor, which is definitely. Um, a breach of protocol, Mm. even though there is enormous um, uh, following for Obama still, um, and he has a lot of support when he does it. Um, As to people sort of flouting this code, I mean, you can think of Trump himself, actually, Mm. when he came on his um, trip to the UK last summer. um, There was a whole question about, um, was he or was he not going to meet Boris Johnson, who by then was not Foreign Secretary? Um, And the answer in the end was, no, he wasn't. Um, although Boris said that he would be very happy to to meet Trump. Um, and Trump, quite, um, again, against protocol, um, said that he thought that Boris Johnson would make a terrific prime minister. Mm. Um, so we've seen all sorts of breaches of this just in the last year.
0: Uh, Stephen Harper tweeted, for India to realize its potential, it needs the courageous and visionary leadership of Prime Minister Modi. Modi quite a conservative himself and perhaps more drawn to a conservative Harper. In 2015, uh, the Canadian Prime Minister at the time hosted uh, the Indian Prime Minister, the first sitting Prime Minister, to visit Canada in more than 40 years because of a very sour relationship between the countries. So has he played an important role, do you think, Carlo? Is he just carrying on, the, the former Canadian Prime Minister Harper, is he just carrying on in, in sort of making sure the countries still have a good relationship or do you see this as, as, as sort of a strange one? I think it's easy for us to, from, from a Far and without
1: insight into what's going on in mm. administrations, it's easy for us to look at situations like this and say um, that things are amiss and that uh, it's a it's an, a reflection of how the current government doesn't have a certain situation under control. Mm. Uh, there must have been some coordination, uh, whether uh, whether it's by the civil service or um, actually with the uh, with Trudeau's government, uh, to make sure that at least. Some of the right messages are being uh, sent to India, and so I think in this case it's um, because we also have this. Just to go back to to Trump real, really quickly, you know, it, again to take Southeast Asia as an example. Uh, in Southeast Asia, all of the real signals to local leaderships were being sent by uh, Mathis. It was mm-hmm. not from the president. It was not from the Department of uh, State. Uh, in that case. I think people on the ground had no idea whether or not there was a connection between what Mathis was actually saying and what Trump was actually going to deliver mm-hmm. in this case where you have a situation where there are political differences but in fact um, the you have a fairly a, a far more normal situation in terms of how uh, canada 's foreign policy is being governed i wouldn 't have been su- i wouldn 't be surprised if actually uh, Harper's visit was to relay certain things that may have gotten lost in the Trudeau Trudeau mm. oh, visit earlier. Uh,
2: I mean, I, th- I think too that that, that is that, that's something that actually ex heads of state and ex politicians are very useful for, um, sort of flying under the radar, knowing the scene, um, maybe having better contacts than the administration in power. Um, all those things make them quite useful. Um, but also there is um, quite often a certain ambiguity there Um, and we've seen that um, very very recently um, with Tony Blair Mm. Um, and Tony Blair has not only um, taken it upon himself to um, become a sort of chief advocate for non-Brexit in the UK or um, for limiting the damage But there was a time, I mean, in the last few weeks, where he went to Brussels, and he was apparently received by top people in the European Commission. And it wasn't at all clear um, whether he was doing that, as it were, as some sort of um, special envoy below the radar, or whether he was doing it off his own bat. And it was actually extremely irritating and annoying um, to Theresa May and the Brexiteers in the British government. Um, And we don't know that to this day. Um, Tony Blair did actually he sort of um, defended it, saying, well, you know, he had contacts there and he was just trying to explore whether there might be um, some other sort of variance of um, of a solution to or to um, the difficulties that May is having with her deal with Brussels. Um, but that, um, we don't know whether it was welcome or whether it was very unwelcome.
0: Hmm. Perhaps we will find out, perhaps we won't. Uh, In any case, I want to just make sure we have time for this last one this evening. An interesting row brewing between France and Italy. Italian politicians have been ruffling feathers in Paris in recent days with populist leaders lending their support to the Gilets Jaunes movement in France. And now there is news in Italy that uh, people there are refusing to lend France artworks for a Leonardo da Vinci exhibition due to take place at the Louvre. The director of the Uffizi Galleries in Florence pointed out that the Louvre Never lends the Mona Lisa, so why would they lend out anything from Da Vinci? What do you think of that, Carlo? Uh, well, I think it's
1: it's uh, really interesting uh, cultural politics going on. A couple of weeks ago on this show, we talked about how uh, the report in France that talked about um, or called for the Louvre to repatriate uh, tens of thousands mm. of objects in their collection. And here we have... Uh, uh, a similar dynamic, except it's between European states, and I think what's interesting about this uh, story is that we never see this, um, this these type of global cultural fights take place within Europe usually mm-hmm. it's always about north-south relations right. uh, and there's always this claim that one side uh, um, the in this case uh, you know France is a uh, is the natural um, custodian of these global uh, art these global pieces of art and that the other side is simply incapable of uh, taking um uh, taking care of them, of course, that's a problematic narrative. Right. Uh, but in this case, there is no. This is simply about uh, national pride and, and uh, perhaps the arrogance of the French uh, from the, the Italian point of view. Uh, and I think this is this is very interesting. Usually, this type of battle is not fought uh, in Europe on art, and yeah. it's something we could, that um, if it develops, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out.
0: Mary, is Italy using their uh, Da Vinci masterpieces as uh, political dangling carrots? Then, do you think? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think I, I agree. How unusual this is! Mm. This is in Europe, but it's also um, very unusual in that it's almost a mirror image of things that usually happen, yeah. which is that cultural relations are often seen as the sort of alternative and the the the. the starting point for repairing relations which are in a ter- terrible state and so you know the classic um, example is Britain and Russia mm-hmm. that despite relations being absolutely terrible at almost every diplomatic level nonetheless they're kept alive at a cultural level with all sorts of exchanges um, with theatres, ballads and museums and people go to and fro and objects are loaned um, big exhibitions, there was an exhibition just um, 18 months ago, big space exhibition which Russians had lent um, all sorts of things from the, from, from their original um, space ventures, which hadn't been let out of the country before. And these are, you know, efforts as a sort of alternative diplomatic track. And what we're seeing here is completely the opposite: mm. um, the two countries whose relations generally were not at all bad um, go completely wrong <laughs> over something like this.
0: Yeah. Very well said, both. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Carlo Benura and Mary djewski thank you so much for joining us here again at Midori House. Today's show produced by Bill ludi researched by Maylee Evans, our studio manager tonight, Kenya Scarlet. More music next, and then at 1900 hours, you can join me for The Entrepreneurs, a feature interview this week with philanthropist and serial entrepreneur Alexandra Mars. And we'll have more on the day's main news stories on the Monocle Daily. That is later, 2200 London Times-7. 1700 in New York City with your host, Emma Nelson. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.